You're listening to the Law & Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the difficult questions where business and the law intersect to help you run a smarter business and avoid costly mistakes. Brought to you by Verna Law PC, a full-service law firm focusing on patents, trademarks, copyrights, domain names, and advertising law. For more information, call 914-908-6757 or send an email to anthony at vernalaw.com for more information. Welcome to the Law and Business Podcast. I'm Anthony Verna, Verna Law PC, focusing on intellectual property and advertising law. With me is my patent agent, Will Jakes. Good afternoon. How are you? Um, well, thank you. And Will is also a monetization expert for intellectual property at Amanus LLC, not just the patent agent for Verna Law. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the patent application process as we kind of give our listeners a, a patent 101 overview with a few episodes. When we're filing a patent application, mm-hmm. what's our heaviest emphasis on in filing that patent application? Well, certainly you want to make sure that it's in the best condition possible. You've described everything according to the law. There are two basic ones that patent agents, attorneys want to keep at the forefront, and that's 35 U.S.C. 101, which says that you're patenting in a certain allowable area. Mm -hmm. That is, it's a process, it's a machine, it's an article of manufacture or devices, people might know it, you know, or a composition of matter. So you want to make sure that you address you know, one of these subject matter areas uh, in your patent. And then, you know, the next thing is 35 U.S.C. 112. Now, there are many others that impact your ability to get a patent or or not Mm -hmm. get a patent, but in terms of just that basic document, you know, 35 U.S.C. 112 is that you must have a written description, you know, that clearly describes in a concise manner what it is you've invented, and it has to be enabling. So... Once we get this application drafted and we file it with the Patent and Trademark Office, same thing on the trademark side of life, we're going to wait a while. Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, on the patent side, we're going to wait a lot longer on the trademark side, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to wait. Many years ago, the Patent Office agreed that it would attempt to get all of its applications fully through the system in about three years. And typically, they do a very good job these days of doing that. For folks that are so inclined, you could actually choose to, you know, uh, have uh, an accelerated uh, examination of your patent, but that's going to cost you. I was going to say the fees are going way up. It'll be a fair number of dollars that you got to come up with in order to get that. But normally, it'll take anywhere from about, you know, let's say two to three years for most of the applications that I see anyway uh, before you get some sort of an office action. That is, somebody picked up your patent, you know, at the uh, USPTO, an examiner, not someone. And, of course, their job is to kind of review that application and decide whether or not it meets merits of the law in terms of being awarded a patent. And so they will send a notice to the applicant or the attorney working on their behalf to argue that we're not going to give you this patent because. (laughs) So the office action that the applicant will receive is rejection of the application with a description of what's wrong with it? 
Uh, generally, yes. And it can take a couple of different forms. The examiner uh, will certainly want to review the application on the merits, and uh, generally speaking, in light of prior art, they will come back with rejections of your claims based on the readings and subject matter that might have been disclosed in some of these other documents. In other cases, or I should say maybe even in the same case, they will come back to you with what we call ob objections, particularly for our applicants that may choose to file on their own. I should say that the Patent Office does provide a fair amount of help to what we call these pro se applicants. But in general, there will be objections as a matter of form or, or how one presents the application to the office. They want their jobs to be easy, to give you the fairest review. And if you're not following these rules, it makes it a little bit difficult for them. So they will object to certain things. So what is the either applicant's job or the representative of the applicant's job once that office action is received? Okay, so the examiner at the patent office typically is going to send a rejection on the merits based on some aspect of the law uh, in light of certain documents that they found in their search. And so they kind of looked at this area as well and saying, well, you know, we think that was disclosed. You're not going to get a patent because of this. They will explain that, those areas in which they're doing their rejection, 102, 103. It comes back to the patent practice. Practitioner, uh, if they're working on the applicant's behalf. And at that point, it is up to the practitioner to come up with an argument as to why the examiner may have erred in their review of the claims that the applicant is asking for. So in the review of the claims, does that mean that the claims of the patent have to be rewritten at that point? Or is the patent examiner going to suggest rewritten claims? How does that work? Well, certainly, you know, uh, from the applicant's point of view, you want an attorney or agent who's going to work on your behalf and, let's say, try to argue that, no, I really think you just got it wrong and what we wrote (laughs) there was absolutely right and here's the reason why. I would caution that particular stance with the USPTO (laughs) is probably not a good one. You know, as my mom used to say, if you want to attract flies, you can use honey a hell of a lot better than you can use, you know, vinegar. And so you're Good philosophy. Yeah, you want to be very professional. You want to hold your ground, but by being derogatory toward the examiner about your claim (laughs) is not going to get you anywhere. But what you do want to do is to point out how you're different. You want to show how you're distinctly different and you came before the art that they're putting in front of you. And you will need to, typically what you want to do is to argue only the points that they have put in front of you. And so you don't want to be, you know, Webster. You don't want to be an encyclopedia. You don't want to, you know, try to throw everything in as to why they ought to give you those claims, but you want to be concise and explain. Now, if what you found in terms of of the examiner's uh, rejection to be somewhat true, then you have the option to do what we call amend those claims. Now, you can't add any new matter whatsoever to an application, you know, once it's been filed, but you're able to make amendments in light of the art that the examiner has uh, has put in front of you. And so you may find yourself, if you have element A, B, and C in a prior art application, you know, that uh, precludes patentability of your invention, then within your application, you may find the ability to claim instead A, B, C prime 
time or A, B, C, and D, if okay. D, in fact, you know, provides you some level of distinctness, unobviousness over what the, the examiner has cited against you. Gotcha. Does that mean then that the claims are narrowed at this particular instance? Because like you said, you can't add anything to the patent application. But those claims can certainly narrow the scope of the invention. Yeah, generally speaking, when one starts to amend their applications, it's somewhat easy to go in and narrow those okay. applications. You may find, in fact, that you could have missed something in the very beginning that was already disclosed in your application that didn't you know, make it into the claims. Eh, not not the very best light for the agent or the attorney, but in fact, you may have found something, and so you may even be able to broaden, you know, what it is that you have presented, as long as it's shown in that previous specification, okay. or uh, the drawings, including the drawings, because drawings have a lot of information and actually is used by the patent office in terms of deciding whether or not there is an invention that exists or not. Let's talk about the deadline then. When we receive the office action, mm -hmm. how long then does the applicant have to respond to that? Typically, the office gives you three months to respond to their office actions, uh, and that's three months, you know, from the mailing date from the USPTO. And so uh, the joke is a lot of uh, agents and attorneys will go right up to the very end of that three months, but they, they, they give you, you know, a sufficient amount of time to respond to them with a response or a response and amendment. I, and I make the distinction that sometimes the, the response is just to indicate that I think you've erred and here is why, okay. and you're not really making any changes to the application. You're making really a substantive argument stating why what is cited is actually different from what the claims and the application state. Absolutely, absolutely. And in other cases, you may be making both a response to certain rejections okay. and or objections that the uh, examiner has cited, as well as making amendments to the claim. So in that re you know, respect, it would be both a response and an amendment. But you're only given three months to do that. And if you run past that three months, you're not dead. You're still allowed to file a response within another three-month period, as long as you pay a fee. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> in, in order to get that done, it is uh, no reason to ask for uh, permission to do this. Under the law, you're allowed you know, to file this response after the three-month period, as long as that fee is paid and it's still responded to in the right way. But after six months then you're dead right. and your application goes abandoned, which means if you really wanted this invention, you kind of start the whole process all over again with a new uh, date of invention. Are there cases where the Patent and Trademark Office examiner f finds maybe more than one invention in an application or maybe your response is best in multiple applications instead of one application. It happens a lot. As a matter of fact, it happens more frequently than not. And so as you're filing these applications, you're trying to get the broadest level of claim right. possible. And sometimes broadness and scope are confused a little bit. And mm -hmm. so one, the breadth of the patent application may get to be somewhat wider than, than it should be. For instance, okay. you may attempt to get a method 
of doing something, mm -hmm. you know, in a claim that in the examiner's mind may be distinctly different from that article or device, you okay. know, that is actually enabling this end result that you're talking about. And so that particular case, they will issue what they call a restriction which essentially says, you know, we see more than one invention here in your application, and you have to, you know, decide which one you want to continue prosecuting with the office. Can the applicant divide then into two applications, or is that restarting one of those two from the very beginning? Assuming that the restriction requirement only dealt with what they believed were two inventions, it could be multiple inventions, sure. but sure. yeah, at that point you are allowed to take those, the balance of the inventions that you started with and actually file for what we call a divisional. Now, you, okay. again, you still have a certain amount of time, you know, to get this filing done, but you're not starting over again as far as the clock is concerned. So okay. if you filed, you know, every everything on January 1 and you got you know some sort of a response uh, January 1 2017 you got a response back two years later you know those divisionals still take precedence back to that January okay. 1 2017 date and so any intervening art would not be cited against those divisionals which are in fact new inventions as long as they're supported in the original application itself, that material. Gotcha, gotcha. What happens if the Patent and Trademark Office examiner has decided that in this patent application, I've seen it all, all of your arguments have come back, and therefore I can't really allow you to, to keep making the same arguments. Do we get to a final rejection? You will. You will okay. receive a final rejection from the office. As it goes with the patent office, I have inventors that walk into my office, and they may be, you know, a little bit on edge about how the, the patent office is behaving, at least in their mind, and they say things like, gosh, don't we pay enough money for them to do this thing right? And I have to kindly remind them that, you know, unlike many, quote unquote, or unlike agencies, mm -hmm. which is what they're confusing the patent office with, they're totally self-funded and supported only by the fees that they charge the public. Right. So not one of your tax dollars ever went to support the patent office. Right. So again, to get to the point, at this final rejection time, you're still allowed to continue arguments for your invention with the patent office as long as you pay the fee. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually have that sitting in front of me. That's called a request for a continued examination. Yeah. And uh, the Patent and Trademark Office charges entities a fee of $1,200 for a first request and then $1,700 for a second or a subsequent request for continued examination. Yes, yes. Uh, so they make a fair amount of money, particularly if you hold steadfast to the fact that you believe that they've erred in that the claims that you're asking for, you know, are in fact uh, ones that you should be allowed. You can always decide to abandon the application at that point as well. Uh, you can decide that the arguments are, you know, being made by the examiner, USPTO, or much more right. than you're able to surmount. and surmounting these arguments again is a, a conversation between you and your patent uh, practitioner and so you may in fact be able to still get a patent but what I try to caution my inventors about is whether or not 
you know, once you've kind of sliced and diced, which is typically what's happening, sure. you know, your application to a certain point, is there still value, you know, in what you believe is a, an application that may be issued to you? Part of that, as always, is going to be a business judgment at that point as well. It absolutely is. And again, I would invite your listeners to check out some of your other podcasts. But we did mention that it is not really the job of your patent practitioner to be your business partner. But, you know, the way we do it at Verna Law, we try to advise folks along these lines because in the end of the day, they're spending a lot of money for this asset that most of them hope will support their ability to monetize it later on. Absolutely agree with you. I mean, that, that's why we're together. Um, what are some other options after the final rejection? So after the final rejection, you're allowed to, within a certain period of time, you know, actually try to sneak another one in on the patent <laughs> office. And so uh, you could make an amendment to your claims or an amendment to your application, you know, uh, before the statutory end date of that final rejection. And simpler said, you know, you're given three months before this period of time for response to the final rejection. But if you're able to respond within two months, you know, then there's certain fee advantages, let's say, that you might be afforded. And in some cases, you may actually be able to wear your examiner down. (laughs) And they may finally come to light and see your point. If that doesn't happen, of course, then as you, you, you mentioned earlier, then you would file at you know, a fair amount of money a request for a continued examination. Right. right. One of the options there, as you mentioned, the amendment after final, no USPTO fees are required to file the amendment after the final <laughs> no. rejection. But still, if that doesn't clear up the issues, the applicant will still receive an action. Yes, they will receive they will still receive an action and if that examiner responds either before the end of that first set statutory end date or after that, you know, statutory end date that was originally sent then your fees will be adjusted accordingly. So at this point if the inventor is still not done fighting is still <laughs> itching to get this patent up Is there any other option? You have other options. And so short of, uh, and this is something you might have done much earlier, which is, I don't advise it all the time, but uh, (laughs) to go to the supervisor of the examiner that you're you know, you're uh, in uh, conflict with and try to get an oral, uh, a face-to-face meeting to try to clear up this point. But that's something that should have been done, you know, quite some time ago. But if you get to the point where you've gotten this final rejection, you still believe that your invention is of merit, at this point you can appeal, you know, to the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. And this is a judge-type setting. Sure. Yeah, where professionals from the Patent Office, along with the examiner, would sit down in light of your appeal brief or your arguments that would be presented to them Mm -hmm. and give it yet another look-see as to whether or not your arguments uh, will hold and support patentability or allowance of these claims that you seek. Going to the patent board is a time-consuming endeavor, right? Most applications that are waiting appeal await, what, another two-year wait? At least at least. 
And not to mention, even though there's not any extensive, other than your petition, fees that you're paying to the patent office, it is an area that is uh, fraught with hurdles and trips. And so you're likely to have uh, legal representation even within the patent office sure. uh, at this point, and those fees can start to mount as well. Just to start, an appeal in the patent trial and appeal board is about $2,800, mm-hmm. which is significantly higher than a trademark appeal. But like you said, it's fraught with issues because it's procedural in nature. Yes, it is. And in a way, while it is an extra review, in a way you are fighting the patent and trademark office itself. Yeah, not exactly kindly looked upon by the U.S. (laughs) PTO to, let's say, help its pro se inventors to fight them. And so at this point, you're pretty much on your own. (laughs) I I mean, the judges who rule are administrative judges. So theoretically, they are separate and apart from the patent and trademark office. They should be. Yeah. I've been to the complex. I know that the yeah. judges are really in the same complex. Well, as they as, say, as well. over the wall, arms link. It's a beautiful <laughs> office, and a lot of them are separated by glass walls, so you could see your colleagues all day long. <laughs> <laughs> what are the likely results going to the patent? trial and appeal board. Are you expecting the board to allow the patent application or are you expecting the board to basically write an order instructing the patent examiner on how to re-examine the patent? It could go any number of ways and I'm glad you asked that question. I've not looked at the data on this in quite some time. But the patent, the PTAB, as we refer to them, could instruct the examiner to take a different track or a different view in terms of the examination of your application. And in fact, may even, you know, suggest, you know, that the claims are patentable and provide, you know, some background to the examiner or some information and support to the examiner that says, this is why, okay? Sure. Or, you know, as is predominantly the case, and I wish I knew the numbers. We'll have to do that in another podcast. I actually have the numbers. <laughs> I actually, I just pulled up the numbers yeah. while you were talking, and the numbers tend to be about the same year in and year out, where 55% of rejections, and this was fiscal year ending in February of 2017, so mm-hmm. March 2016 to February 2017, 55.3% of appeals were completely affirmed. Mm -hmm. So in other words, going to the board... Isn't a bad idea. Right. (laughs) What was completely reversed Mm -hmm. was about 30%. Affirmed in part and reversed in part was 13.2%. Yeah. And And when I say it's not a bad idea, it's just a matter of what's the probability, you know, what's, you know, the chances that you might succeed. And if you're talking about, you know, Again, not to be pejorative and to separate our independent inventors of the world, (laughs) our small company inventors of the world, from our large corporate inventors of the world, the amount of money, you know, pales with respect to what it is that that patent brings to you in terms of value. And so that's, you know, what should be put on the table in terms of driving your decision versus your ego of uh, (laughs) fighting and having a kind of win, you know, against the USPTO. I think just to wrap this up, I think a couple thoughts for our listeners is that the patent application process is long Mm -hmm. and the claims really do 
matter. That's the important part. And going through what the invention is multiple times between the applicant and the representative, uh, to me, is the most important part. It is absolutely the most important part. Remember, you know, a patent is a right for you to keep somebody mm -hmm. from doing something. It is not a right for you to do something. And it's a small nuance that a lot of our independent inventors don't seem to understand. And so we try to make sure that they have this understanding as we kind of go through the process. The other thing we always want to make sure that they keep in mind is that as you're going through this argument, through these changes with the patent office, let's say you made an amendment and you actually, you know, canceled claims, you know, even through the PTAB, you can't go back right. and get those later on. You know, once they're gone, they're gone. And the whole world at some point gets to see these arguments, you know, that sure. are going on between you and the patent office and therefore can make their own assessments about what the real value of your patent, assuming it was issued, you know, what the true value is, what it is that you gave up and what it is that you're now not able to stop them from doing. All right, well, thanks very much for being on this episode. We'll have more episodes with Will and more episodes coming up uh, in the coming weeks. I thanks very much. I appreciate the time to speak. Thanks. All right, and also, before we go, uh, Will's email address is will, W-I-L, at vernalaw.com. My email address is anthony at vernalaw.com. Feel free to write to us with any questions you may have. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. This has been the Lawn Business Podcast. Visit VernaLaw.com for more episodes. To contact VernaLaw PC, send an email to Anthony at VernaLaw.com or call 914-358-6401.